Hi, and welcome to this special episode of Cephad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today, we've got a very special collection of Cephad fellows to talk about the uh, the new Biden administration in the Middle East and what it might mean for some of the the relationships and actors in the region and how some of those actors might see the the new Biden administration. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Edward Wasnidge, Deputy Director of CEPAD and Senior Lecturer in International Relations at the Open University. Joining Eddie is uh, Dr. Lawrence Rubin. Lawrence is Associate Professor in the Samnon School of International Affairs at the Georgia Institute of Technology. And last but by no means least is the wonderful Banashi Kenoush, scholar of international affairs and the author of the really wonderful Saudi Arabia and Iran Friends or Foes. Welcome, everyone. I'm really delighted that we're able to get this together and get people from across the UK and across both sides of the United States into a time that, that fits everyone. So, Eddie, Larry, Banafshe, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Good morning. So um, let, let's start with you, Larry. Um, the, the new Biden administration, what's its, its stance towards the Middle East? What should, um, what should scholars of the Middle East and, and people interested in the Middle East expect from the, the Biden administration, do you think? Yeah, um, thanks, Simon, for having me. Thanks, uh, everybody here for um, participating as well. Um, yeah, I want to probably just give a big a big context just so people are aware um, of what the administration is or what it's doing kind of to, to um, when it starts to look at the Middle East. And one of it is really just saying the Middle East is not or won't be the primary focus. Um, and, and I'd probably put it largely or roughly as kind of three, three Cs, if you think about it, in this context of COVID-19. Uh, uh, China and climate, and these are the big things. Russia is, of course, important, and it's and it's um, important in the context of what came out heavily in the Trump administration, the um, great power competition, but also toward the end of the Obama administration, um, the last one. And it's relevant because a lot of those same players from the end of the Obama administration are currently in the Biden administration um, in some of these really senior positions. And this framework, that, therefore, is to see it, if we want to look at more regionally in this context of great power competition, it's going to matter a lot in terms of how issues are framed. That being said, there are a couple of, I'd say, a couple of uh, areas that, you know, I'll, I'll, say, I'll talk about very briefly and then kind of turn it over to others um, that are kind of seen as the primary goals in this way more broadly. One, of course, the big one on everybody's radar, it's uh, containing... Iranian nuclear program, as well as its efforts to destabilize the region. The administration sees then ending these forever wars, as they're, as they're called. You know, Afghanistan, not part of what we're going to talk about, but Yemen, Libya, and possibly Syria. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, securing, continuing to secure Israel and Arab-Israeli peace process, building on that. These are all kind of combined. And then the big question mark um, is advancing human rights and democratization, uh, we, there's clearly a big hiccup to try to promote that those types of that type of agenda January 6th, so that might take a back seat for a little while, um, and it may not even come back to the extent that if this is going to challenge, I think some of the bigger um, secu- bigger goals of the administration, then um, then we may see that being downplayed. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave it there, and I'm happy to go into more of it later. 
Sure, thanks. I mean, there's so many things to pick up on just from that very brief synopsis of, of the Biden administration. And that, that very idea of the US trying to promote uh, human rights and democracy after what happened in, in early January seems a little fanciful. But uh, I guess that's something that the administration has to has to grapple with. Um, Eddie, what's been the reception in, in Tehran to the Biden administration? Thanks, Simon, and thanks for inviting me along today. Um, I think, well, what, one thing, if, we, if we're thinking about things that are of, of, of concern, you know, at, at an international level, is obviously the return or otherwise to, to the JCPOA, um, certainly in terms of um, key figures within the current Iranian administration anyway. Um, so, you know, there, there's this uh, waiting to see if Biden's going to make good on this promise uh, to, to re-enter it. And obviously, we're already seeing a kind of jockeying for position amongst various players on how things might get restarted, you know, within the states and amongst regional allies, um, uh, you know, but um, and also you know, anti-government forces outside Iran seeking to influence the Biden administration, persuade him not to re-enter, all that kind of thing. But, you know, ultimately, the mood music is certainly better than it has been for the last four years, at least. I think, uh, as, as is, you know, well articulated in, in the media with, with key Iranian uh, um, spokespersons, figures uh, such as Zarif and others, you know, the position is that US must recommit first. They're the ones who violated the deal and uh, there needs to be some kind of trust building gesture, I think, because you know, we can't forget how damaging that was to the kind of US reputation. And I think, you know, certainly among European allies as well, uh, and Iran's been, been keen to sort of, you know, take note of that. And of course, the withdrawal of, you know, Trump, you know, from the from the JCPOA uh, of, of America, from, from its commitments to that, I think did undo quite a lot of I wouldn't say necessarily goodwill or, or trust, but that kind of very tenuous trust that had been built up over years of painstaking negotiation with the JCPOA. So, obviously, from Iran's perspective, no other state has been under that kind of a strict inspection. They've maintained its compliance until very recently. Uh, and that shift in their position in recent months may well have been some kind of preemptive move to gain some traction, I think, in any ensuing negotiation, of course. But Iran's going to do what's in its own national interest in order to get the best possible outcome of any US re entering into that deal. And so I think that's why it's saying the US needs to move first, has to rebuild that lack of trust, something that's obviously a, a default setting, I think, in the Iran-US relationship anyway, unfortunately. Uh, but it's not just about a, a, you know, a signal to Iran, it's about showing, I think, to the world that the US can keep up this appearance of, of or reassume this appearance of trying to be an honest broker in world affairs, even if the truth is, is potentially very, very different. Um, yeah, and it's not just a, a new U.S. administration, of course, as well. We have impending elections in Iran this year, which will may well lead to a very different type of um, government there. Uh, some may well seek to return to a more confrontational focus, or we might get a you know a similar figure like Rouhani tries to keep a foot in both camps um, and mean keeping to the JCPOA. But it's certainly not something that's you know supported across the board within the Iranian political spectrum as well. And there are some more uh, you know conservative and confrontational elements within the Iranian polity who you know who, who seek a withdrawal as well. So um, that's a further complicating factor, which is why I think there may be a rush to to get something sorted sooner rather than later. Sure. Thank you so much, Eddie. Um, Banafshe, you've kindly offered to, to talk to us about Saudi Arabia. And I think Saudi is a really interesting one in the sense that long-standing, it has this long-standing relationship with the United States. 
Uh, under the Obama administration, things became a little fractious. Under Trump, they improved dramatically. Uh, but there's this this precarious type of relationship right now. Um, and I guess a great deal of concern in in the kingdom, particularly after the suspension of arms sales. So I wonder, what's the response to Biden being like in Saudi Arabia and perhaps also in other, uh, other Gulf states? It's great to be back on Sefad Pod and with all of you. Thank you for having me. Um, this is a great question. You know, as a general rule of thumb, Saudi Arabia is pretty comfortable working with any uh, U.S. administration. This is a long-term relationship um, throughout which, you know, both Democrats and Republicans have established close partnerships with Saudi Arabia, even under the Obama administration. As you know better than I, you know, the arms sales continue to flow to Saudi Arabia. I think that... Um, at least in private, even if the Saudis do not utter these sentiments publicly, they are looking for a level of U.S. leadership that will, A, prevent the outbreak of any future conflict in the region. Um, we all know the consequences of these conflicts in the region are tremendous for, for countries like Saudi Arabia, like Iran. They're there in the neighborhood, and they have to clean up for years later. Um, but then the real big question is to how to go about doing that and achieving that. And um, if any given U.S. administration decides to put too much pressure on Saudi Arabia in a way that weakens the Saudi position in the region, that might not be something that Riyadh would look forward to, and understandably so, not because it just undermines its partnership with the United States to an extent and gives Iran a bit of an upper hand, but also because the Saudi leadership has been historically essential in the Arab world to an extent, to an extent in upholding a level of balance uh, of power in the region uh, with or against Iran and, and and you know I'm a big advocate as you know of this uh, this balance of power being upheld in the region in a manner that does not undermine either the Saudi security nor the Iranian security. So the big question in Saudi Arabia is really how would the Biden administration go about doing this and achieving this task? As you know, Saudi Arabia is right now in a, in a juncture of time in which many of its Gulf neighbors are re, um, sort of reaching out to Israel. Um, Saudi Arabia has to figure out how it's going to navigate that landscape on one hand. On the other hand, how would it deal with Iran if there's a sudden opening or even a gradual opening between the United States and Iran? Um, because from the Saudi perspective, Iran will not withdraw its attempts to continually influence and project power in the Middle East. And um, what, what, what would the Saudis have to do then? So uh, if I were Saudi Arabia, I wouldn't mind having an assertive Biden administration take on the leadership mantle a little bit in the region and tell everyone what direction these, as, as uh, Lawrence said, these uh, never-ending conflicts will take, but really in a manner that's not suddenly biased against Saudi Arabia or or any of or anything like that because that would put the Saudis on the defensive. So I hope, you know, this this helps a little bit. It it does, but once again I think it it provokes a lot more questions. Many of them um, are going to be directed towards the United States. So, so Larry, maybe we should come back to you. Um Eddie raised the question about 
uh, US signaling towards Iran and many in Iran requiring that type of gesture of good faith. Is that something that we can expect? But also Banafshi raised questions about US leadership and um, taking on this, this mantle of a leadership position. But in light of what you were saying about the three C's, is that something that that we can realistically expect the Biden administration to be doing? Or, or is it more uh, preoccupied with addressing those those three C's to actually take on that leadership role? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I was listening to, um, you know, both Benafshi and, and Eddie's res- responses as well, and in- increasingly convincing me how complex, of course, these issues are and how interrelated they are. Um, well, I think that, you know, the, the, the government, the U.S. government can do lots of things at um, lots of different times. The question is, is what becomes the major focus and how much is it willing to expend in terms of its, its energy and resources? Um, and I don't think, you know, in terms of it's pretty clear from uh, an, um, expending resources when it comes to military assets in the region is not something it wants to do because of that big context of great power competition and Asia in particular, of course, and then thinking about um, Europe, but it's really all about about China from that perspective. So the extent that that, um, that matters in that, but we're talking about largely, in a sense, diplomacy. And, um, and a couple different, a couple things kind of come to mind this way, um, is how can it be a leader and be able to balance what might insta- or basically revive some of the fears that, say, many of the Gulf uh, allies had toward the end of the Obama administration with, um, with the JCPOA going into effect, and um, and not, of course, uh, and then and then not, of course, want to replay all of these and, and run into these really tense relationships where you may get Congress very upset again and really put a lot of pressure on the on the Saudis. So the way that I think one of the things to do is probably. Um, you know, the, the challenge is probably announce a type of gradualism, but at the same time recognizing, because even talking about gradualism can put a lot of um, fear in, in, say, the Saudis or even Emiratis fear that the Iranians may move fast towards a program of some sort because they seem to be um, doing this and have done this much more so in the last uh, year and a half in terms of developing their nuclear capacity. So I think one of the ways to be our leaders, we will be, we will be there, we will try to guide these. Um, bear with us. There the, the major issues that a lot of people have complaints about, of course, um, not only in terms of sunset clause with the JCPOA, but what wasn't included um, were probably the big talking points. And so the administration has to satisfy those potential critics in Congress that will certainly come after um, uh, after the administration because they'll see this as a, an Obama redux. Um, and uh, yet at the same time say we've got to take this into account. Um, one of the things that I think the Biden administration has done and tried to do publicly, at least, and I think in some of the hearings, talking about, we, yes, we will visit and take into account the Gulf allies, um, uh, more, and of course Israel, more there. And that's what kind of has also changed to some extent in the last four years. We're not going back to the same situation. You have normalization uh, agreements um, between um, these states. It may have been that the states cooperated for years and years, but an official, you know, tells you something else. So um, this may, you know, it's a question and you can turn to, um, you know, others about this, uh, Iran's reaction of how they see this. Because if, you know, you could say Israel is just now part of uh, uh, CENTCOM, you've got normalization agreements. It's a, Is that going to put Iran into a corner or is it going to be, you know, um, or more amenable to uh, agreements of certain sorts? And, and, um, and I, 
uh, anyway, so that's I'll, I'll kind of leave it there as far as how I would see a potential for uh, for some type of leadership. So from that, and given the tensions that you flagged up between the White House and and, and Congress, there doesn't seem to be much opportunity for a um, for for a type of signalling then, which according to to Eddie seems to be a little bit problematic if if Iran was to take U.S rhetoric at least over re-entering the JCPOA seriously but um that that point about the the realignment of of regional politics i think is really really important so banafshi how is how is um saudi arabia viewing this realignment with regard to to future regional politics this sort of uh, signing of, um, of diplomatic relations, I guess, between the various Arab states and and Israel, but not the kingdom itself. It should be said. Sure, Saudi Arabia, you know, still regards itself as a leader in all these processes, even if it doesn't join in uh, on the diplomatic sphere and publicly. Um, the normalization uh, gives us a few clues about the Gulf region in general as things begin to, the tensions between Qatar and Saudi Arabia begin to ease. What is emerging uh, is the reality that the region um, needs to improve its economic status, especially in the pandemic and post-pandemic era. And between 2017 and 2020, when Saudi Arabia and Qatar had a falling out, a lot of Gulf projects, including the famous Gulf Railway, you know, kind of took a took a back seat. And to begin with, the feasibility of some of these projects was wasn't quite clear from the start because, you know, they usually embark on mega projects and. Uh, you know, it's not clear how many years it takes for those mega projects to yield the the, the economic results that the, uh, given the enormity of the investments that are needed to go into them. So one thing is clear, the region, especially Qatar and Kuwait, and to an extent the United Arab Emirates, are very clear that they cannot afford attention in the region. And Saudi Arabia must go along with that reality. Uh, and it has. Um, now, with uh, the normalization that has occurred between Israel and uh, and some of the Gulf countries, all that does is is to push Saudi Arabia to continue to figure out how it can maintain an, an upper hand in this process. Because we have to remember that Iran is not the only country that Saudi Arabia is concerned about in the region. Saudi Arabia must also be concerned about Israel to an extent, and maybe Lawrence uh, can talk a bit about that. But uh, over Israel. Israel, uh, because, you know, it's a tenuous relationship um, when it comes to Israel-U.S. versus Saudi-U.S. partnership. Mm. And, um, it, you know, it, a level of merging of interests over there is, is necessary. Now, will that merging involve the isolation of Iran? Or will it in, involve a level of inclusiveness in the region? toward Iran that will at least enable uh, um, the tensions to reduce a bit. Um, that's what I foresee, but, you know, uh, maybe Eddie can also speak a bit more about that. I hope this answers a bit of the question that you answered. Asked. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And I want to come to Eddie uh, with a couple of questions in a minute. But Larry, do you want to come back to what Banafshi has just said there with regard to, to the, the Israeli point of view? Um, yeah, I... Well, I, I think part of it is is you know the on the one hand they would 
is really know and see the uh, Biden administration. They're familiar um, with many of the people, have spent a lot of time in there. Um, I think they know there's also probably slight learning that's occurred in the last uh, uh, four, four years um, when it comes to looking back at the successes and failures of the JCPOA, and that's primarily what it's about. Um, but, uh, you know, of course, there's apprehension. Th then again, it's probably a, a matter of saying, look, we've publicly come out um, and have normalization agreements in the region, um, and, uh, and this is making, and this is kind of showing everybody on a, uh, almost in a sense on paper um, that, uh, that there is a confluence of interest when, with regard to Iran, that it wasn't just we were going and doing this quietly and privately um, lobbying against, for the JCPOA. Um, so that's where that's where I would see it. Of course, there's there's an opening there. Uh, um, I mean, I would say in this opportunity, there's a lot of mess within uh, Israeli domestic politics of of yet another election um, that probably won't change very much at all. And um, and the eyes, you know, kind of like the the sore of all of this. One thing, um, you know, has been the the um, with regard to Palestinian uh, politics and Palestinian issue and and the divisions that may occur over the Biden administration's approach to a two-state solution and the Trump administration was very different, and then the Israeli position of, of, um, of not, not pursuing that uh, under the Netanyahu government. So um, anyway, that's, that's kind of where I would say that you quickly assess from their perspective of kind of a wait and see and knowing, knowing the players, but knowing that the, the same, a lot of the same questions that they have um, about the JCPOA, which is front and center for them, um, are the, is, is what's going to matter with regard to the ballistic missile activities, mm -hmm. in addition to everything else, and the other parts, the um, um, the acti Iranian activities in the region. Sure. So, Eddie, looking at it from Tehran, then, what's the the view of this this normalization and and perhaps realignment of of regional security after the 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 normalization, the, the Abraham Accords, etc. What what's Tehran thinking here? Well, I, I guess there's, uh, there's there's a number of things there. I mean, what was discussed, which which was just fascinating. It just again shows the complexity of this and, and the fact that you know there's so many different lenses to look at this through. I think, um, I mean, on the normalization, well, the, you know, the, the response from Tehran is, is, is clear. It's obviously um, very much against that. And, and, and in many ways, that strengthens its arguments about its conception of what regional order should be and, and, um, and, and, and how it should look and how it should manifest itself. So I think in, in a sense, it plays into its, into its um, very well-established narrative about about the position of Israel um, and, and how it views it. But it also, um, I think the discussion sort of alludes to some some wider questions about, like you say, these regional alignments and, and also what the US is trying to do to, to still, uh, in a sense, you know, appease its regional allies, uh, you know, Saudi and Israel sort of chief amongst them, because uh, this is obviously something that was very, very prominent among, uh, under Trump, and it's something that will continue to be important under Biden as well. And the fact that we're sort of seeing this discussion now of having um, other aspects, um, which Larry alluded to, you know, other aspects of, of um, Iran's uh, regional activities or its missile program incorporated into a subsequent, a uh, new kind of JCPOA2 or something, you know, tying the two together. Obviously, from Tehran's perspective, that's an absolute no-no in the short term, at least. I mean, Iran has indicated actually many times in the past that if 
mutual trust can be built, you know, based on the usual things, tolerance, respect, then anything's kind of on the table. But ultimately, their focus, you know, with the JCPOA, it's a deal regarding Iran. So you can program, it was never about its missile program or its regional alliances. Uh, and so I think, you know, for, for they're saying, well, you know, get this right first and you have the basis for developing trust and further understanding. And obviously, if you start shifting the goalposts before you've even restarted, then it's not going to build that trust. And then I think it has a, 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 a subsequent, well, no, 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 a related thing from, from that is this issue of regional security as well. Um, uh, you know, so this a forum in which Iran's regional activities and other things can be discussed, you know, it's very much a separate issue. The fact that there's this clamour for for other states to suddenly be involved, um, you know, uh, is, is because, you know, people are perhaps, you know, concerned, fearful of what a Biden presidency might mean for them and their security. Um, I think, you know... Uh, you know, we don't think Saudi is going to be cut adrift completely by, by the Biden administration. I don't think that's going to happen at all. There might be a more, you know, a slightly more balanced policy towards them. Um, but I think, you know, for Iran, the key point is maintaining and guarding its independence and its foreign policy orientation. That's what it's always been about. Um, and the very thing that guides it is that sense of how the region should look and how any regional security arrangement or talk should take shape. So for Iran, it's region first always. It shouldn't be tied to something like the JCPOA, which is, you know, a, a, a wider international agreement. It's about sitting around the table together with other regional states because for Iran, the problem's always been the external intervention in the region. They, you know, the, the view is that, um, you know, it is the US which causes the imbalance, you know, um, and that any you know sensible US administration would you know recognize that rather than giving a blank checkbook to its you know to hostile um, states so i think um you know the, the view is that these things should be treated separately and that you know any kind of security uh, talks need to be uh the US needs to be excluded from those which which won't surprise anyone of course yeah and i can't imagine that's particularly well received in in riyadh or, or indeed elsewhere is that is that fair to say, Banafshi? Yes, absolutely. Um, right now, as as we all know, you know, Iran has reached out to Kuwait and uh, to Qatar to sort of advance this regional dialogue once again. Um, it's a little bit iffy for Saudi Arabia. I think Saudi Arabia wouldn't mind having at some point its own dialogue with Iran. Uh, you know, but uh, to bring the whole region into it and allow other countries like Kuwait and Qatar to have more say at the table than Saudi Arabia would like to see, um, you know, raises more questions in Riyadh than answers them. And then there's the question for the Saudis of Iran's real motivations behind this regionalism, regional approach in the past. You know, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council and Iran have engaged in a number of dialogues, um, but it really went nowhere when things got really tense between Iran and the United States. So unlocking uh, the, the challenge of the relationship between Iran and the United States is is key as well to uh, any level of uh, success in in uh, in the region at the regional level, and on top of that, we have to factor in the reality that none of these uh, Gulf states, uh, even Iraq, really want to watch Iran become 
gain the upper hand in any regional dialogue. Imagine from their perspective, if Iran is doing great with the Biden administration and also kind of like, you know, telling the region what it wants and what it doesn't want and, and asking everyone to comply. Well, um, I'm not sure the Qataris or the UAE or, you know, Saudi Arabia would really like that either. So it all goes back from their perspective to the JCPOE and what the United States really wants to do to address the challenge of, of Iran's um, regional influence and, you know, uh, a number of other things that everyone today has touched on. So it strikes me that those in the region are, are waiting to see what the United States is going to do, but their activity and their, their positions are contingent on the United States doing particular things with uh, one side viewing or desiring one particular outcome and the other desiring a different one. But then um, Larry's argument suggests that the US isn't all that focused and has its own types of of struggles internally to balance all these competing needs and agendas, which sort of suggests that there isn't going to be any movement on the JCPOA anytime soon, at least from the American side of things. But Larry, in addition to perhaps that brief um, that brief question, there is, a, of course, a practical uh, and, and a very real set of questions that, that also need addressing with regard to diplomacy in, uh, in Syria and Yemen, where, where conflict continues to rage. And in both states, there are devastating humanitarian crises, uh, hundreds of thousands killed, millions displaced from their homes, Yemen on the brink of um becoming the first dry state in the world um so serious challenges there but but to what extent did those concerns figure in the the Biden administration's concerns um yeah and i uh that's a great question and i kind of want to also go back and say we could also be surprised uh you know in terms of there is some as Simon you were asking like what's a signal to the Iranians there may be some statement and you know comes out in some period of time. Um, but going back to the other two, those two other issues, uh, Syria and Yemen, um, there's certainly, you know, concerns. And I think uh, Syria, more so than the others, it, uh, represent what, what, why this problem has been so complicated for so long. And if we look back even to the period of time um, of around the time of the JCPOA, the hesitancy um, that the United States had or the Obama administration had with regard to um, Iran, Iranian policy in um, in Syria, being very, very careful about what it did and didn't do because it would affect other negotiations, and it may run into the same type of uh, challenge before. The difference between the the two is just the Russian presence there. So it may be a question of figuring out how to best leverage that. But then, of course, that brings up to this big issue of. Um, what, uh, how do you view this more generally with regard to um, Russia and competition? And I think the United States can kind of view many of these things uh, separately to come to agreements like New START and so forth, um, push in that direction, um, figuring out what happens when Europe and some type of stabilization and also allow for some modus vivendi in, in uh, Syria. With regard to Yemen, though, the, um, the question, I think, comes will come much more so within Congress pushing this back, and this is how it relates back to the, the Saudi questions and some of the issues that Benafsha has um, has raised. How the Saudis will will view continuous pressure when it comes to um, when it comes to uh, 
if it's arms sales and uh, embargoes and other types of momentum to really push the United States to take a stronger stand, and the Saudis will, you know, may face that just as the way the Emiratis, um, you know, the uh, kind of jump shipped a little bit earlier, also recognizing, among many other reasons, recognizing that this is not a good thing for their own uh, public opinion there. But the Saudis see a very different approach because it's it's uh, it, it it faces them in a very different way, and I won't speak for um, you know the experts uh, that they can chime in on these on these aspects here, but um, but uh, I think it still resides in the agenda. But again, of money, these bigs are if you're going to divide attention, that um, part of the administration, it's good. These issues are going to get worked on, but that's not going to probably be the one that's going to um, consume a majority of the attention. Sure. Thanks, Larry. Banafshi, how do you see these these two conflicts playing out with regard to the Saudi position on diplomacy, on um, on relations with the US, with relations with Iran? Obviously, one of them has, has a great deal more strategic uh, importance than the other. I think that... Um the region is going right now with regard to Iran at least through transitional phase. Iran's, uh, as, as Eddie mentioned, presidential elections are coming up in uh, June 2021, and um, the hardliners are clamoring for power. Uh, and from the Saudi perspective, I think that a wait-and-see approach would probably be a safer, um, sure um, sort of route to take between now and then. Um, so to answer your question by way of diplomacy, I think that we can expect a few, you know, steps here and there, like, you know, uh, that have already happened, like Kuwait talking to Iran, Qatar talking to Iran, the Saudis trying to see where they fit in. Um, but, but ultimately... You know, diplomacy can only um, begin shaping when there is a clearer vision of which direction Iran and the United States are moving toward. And right now, um, while there are some promising signs of interest between for talks between Washington and Tehran, and my colleagues here can um, correct me if I'm wrong, it just um, it, it you know it just doesn't seem that they figured out exactly how to do that. Um, you know, if Iran wants sanctions lifted first before any further talks are done on the region or anything else, um, and if the hardliners in Iran are against those kind of talks, then um, I really don't know where diplomacy is headed in the next few months. Right. Thanks, Panafshe. Eddie, do you want to come in on that from the, the Iranian perspective, if indeed we can talk of that at present in light of the upcoming elections? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. To, it is. It, it is hard to to see. We are at a kind of, uh, I suppose, a, a something of a wait and see phase. I think, mean, like like everyone has said, but uh, you know, there there are certain core national interests of Iran which which are reflected in its involvement in um, yeah, certainly w- with Syria, of course, um, and and with Yemen. I mean, you know, it, it's been a kind of a, a very low cost way of, of gaining influence in, in Saudi Arabia's backyard. It's not, you know, it was, it was was never really a kind of main domain of, of Iranian influence um, prior to the kind of uh, Saudi invasion there. So, I, you know, Iran has made noises about being involved in any kind of regional dialogue. Again, you know, from what I was saying earlier, uh, to do with Yemen. Uh, so uh, I think 
but we'll have to see what happens with uh, any pressure from the Biden administration on Saudi Arabia to, to, you know, put an end to hostilities there. Um, with Syria, I think obviously all routes go 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 through Moscow on this. Um, you know, Russia is, has really established itself as, as, as a big power in the Middle East again, and, and you know, Iran and, and the wider resistance axis indeed have, have, you know, really formed stronger ties with Moscow as a result of that involvement in Syria. And so, you know, this Astana process, which Iran has been heavily involved in with Russia and, and with Turkey as well, is, is where it sees, you know, the um, diplomatic momentum being as far as Syria is concerned. So I think that won't change too much in, in terms of, of uh, the Syria conflict, uh, I don't think. Right. Okay. I was, I was just wondering if I could just throw in a thought here and get everyone's feedback. You know, there's always this idea of parallel talks that we've all touched on today as well. Like, you know, the U.S. and Iran having their own dialogue and the U.S. encouraging the Saudis to join in on any regional level the, the discussions with Iran. Um, what does everybody think about the, the pros and cons of these parallel talks taking shape? Because that might well be what's, what's left to pursue. Larry, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I mean, I don't have um, the uh, Benafsha's question is, is much better than my answer. Um, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> um, I don't think I don't think it's ever a, a bad, you know, obviously a bad thing. There's so many of these talks we, we never know about um, is the other question. We'll find out about an impress many years later. But um, um, you know, the, I guess the, the big fear is what we've also often seen is having these talks, these parallel talks. And um, the country that feels itself to be a target of the talks, uh, not being so happy about it or finding every reason not to be, you know, knowing that oh, the United States might be secretly negotiating with Iran and then the Saudis are quite upset and so are the Israelis and the Emiratis, right? So that's yeah. kind of the downside of all of it. Um, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to others. <sighs> It's a, it's a really, yeah, really um, interesting and, and very important point, Ben Lefshire. I think, uh, you know, the, the traditional mediating powers, I think, uh, are important here. So obviously Oman, which has this, you know, historic legacy of, of, of doing that kind of thing and offering kind of more covert or attractive diplomacy type of initiatives. Um and 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 then, you know potentially Iraq as well. I mean, it, it depends. Iraq as a, as a tricky balancing act, but you know if its rapprochement with, with Saudi Arabia can, continues and it can manage to strike that balance, then that could be another place in which uh, there could be some kind of um, you know facilitation of, of uh, you know back channel diplomacy. So um, I, I think it's it, it may like you very rightly say it may be the only hope actually. Um, um, but it's always, you know, states happen to be sensitive of other states' interests and needs. So, you know, the secrecy is often necessary, but, you know, counterproductive as well as, as Larry rightly highlighted. Can I just... Oh, please go ahead. I just want to add one short sentence. Please, Banafshi, please. The only good news is that both the hardliners and the reformists in Iran unanimously agree that a regional dialogue is 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 good to have. Um that's the only silver lining for the time being. Uh, so they're both in favor of talking with the Saudi Arabia. Right. The only spanner I was going to throw in, and it, it's only potentially a, a very small spanner, but given the uh, Oman has this long history of, of uh, facilitating dialogue, of course, 
uh, and and obviously Sultan Qaboos was, was central to that. But given the transition that is is still ongoing, I think in in Oman, even though there is a new Sultan, uh, I think Oman is trying to reposition itself in the region. And the question would be: To what extent is that repositioning a continuation of of the policies advocated by Qaboos, or is it something that's that's perhaps more in line with with its other um, GCC members? And I guess maybe the same can be said for for Kuwait too, um, yeah. who were flagged up as as possible mediators, but there were a couple of um, a couple of issues, uh, one pertaining to to terrorism, but the other now pertaining to again a, a period of transition. So I I wonder to what extent that might might impact on things. I'll say a quick word, if I may, about this and let others um, please uh, add to it. Um, you know, it's very critical for Oman and for Kuwait to carve out an in, uh, a stronger independent regional foreign policy mm-hmm. that is less overshadowed by the Saudi factor. Um, and with the new um, uh, leadership in Oman, that's proven to be even more so the case. It's, it's developing a more assertive regional foreign policy. Um with Kuwait stepping in, um, you know, that adds other avenues uh, for regionalism because Kuwait is not only trying to raise its own profile as a regional mediator between the GCC and Iran, but also within the GCC um, yeah. to resolve those economic tensions between Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, etc. So um, the real question in my mind is to what extent will Saudi Arabia go along with these trends? And to what extent, as Lauren said, would the Biden administration be willing to encourage Saudi Arabia to embrace some of these trends? And with that, to what extent will Israel be willing to go along with uh, the US and indeed Saudi Arabia and its other new uh, normalized allies, perhaps? But I guess what this has done is... uh, this this conversation the past 40 minutes or so have flagged up the the many different complex overlapping parts of a of a very complex and sensitive jigsaw if you will pertaining to the US's role in the in the Middle East but also uh, the the rivalries that are playing out with the US in many ways occupying a central role so I guess on that note, with a, a degree of positivity offered by Banafshi to, to maybe counter the, the the concern expressed earlier, I think we must end it. Otherwise, we'll be here all night or all morning or all afternoon, depending where you are in the world. Um, but I think I must say a huge thank you to, to all of our, our wonderful guests, Edward Wasnage, Lawrence Rubin and Banafshi Kenush. A massive thank you to you all. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you all, as it always is. So thank you for for sparing us your time and a huge thank you as always for listening. Until next time, thank you very much.